this show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 164 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Hey, Jason. How's it going? I just had a little bit of a nap. Uh, I was I was raring to go at 1.30 today, but you weren't there. Yeah, that's my bad. I, for some reason, thought we hadn't decided on a specific time and kind of left it to possibly late in the day. I probably should have checked in with you, but I ended up falling asleep. <laughs> Uh, uh, in front of the you know the football game. Yeah, so you were napping when I called you, and now now I'm napping <laughs> this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm sorry. I apologize for that. No problems. So, um, <clears throat> well, I, I had a bit of um, good fortune on Hacker News this week. Um, submitted my post how I converted my subscription site from PayPal to Stripe in two days. Yeah. Ended, ended up with 180 points, and it was on the front page for 24 hours. Not too shabby. What was it? I reached what number four? I think it was the uh, number four. I definitely pinned it though. Didn't didn't ring the bell, but pinned it. No, okay. Now pinning it is better than ringing. Pinning it, ringing the bell is hit number one. Pinning it, at least by our previous definition, is that it stays at number one for a, a very long period of time. Oh, so what do you call it when it stays on the front page then? For, no, it's uh, just uh, twenty-four hours the front page. You know. Fair enough. Okay. I don't know. I mean, we can come up with some new definitions. <laughs> I All think right. that pretty much covers it. But yeah, I mean, you know, just if you make it to like the top. I don't know, 10, you're, you're in a good shape. I mean, you're going to get at least 5,000 people are going to probably read it. Yeah. You know, which is not bad. I mean, if, I think if you pin it, you, if it's up there all day, you could get as high as 30,000. And, uh, and then if you're really lucky, because it's, it's so popular, it, um, it kind of gets a second life on other sites. So and, what the post was about was about the fact that I basically converted Plugio from um, PayPal to Stripe. Now, I didn't fully convert it. I've just made it so that both of those, you know, so that Stripe is an option and also PayPal's an option. Um, and I just said how it was pretty easy to do. And the real trick that I'd used was the instant payment notification, you know, the, the PayPal IPN stuff that kind of pings you under the hood. Um, at the top of that script, I basically looked to see, is this coming from Stripe or is this coming from PayPal? If it's coming from Stripe, I'll just convert the Stripe JSON parameters into a minimum set of... Um, post parameters, the same parameters that PayPal sends me. So basically, that's all the work you have to do, really. And then it kind of get, hooks into the whole same subscription system. The rows get inserted into the database in the same way. So not so much work, but I did do quite a bit of testing just to double check that I got my calculations right. But uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, because two and a half days sounds like a lot more time based on my experience integrating it with any any foo. Right. Well, because you see, I, like I... I guess the difference is is with active customers and pushing it out into production, I really wanted to be very, very thorough about it. So I had a you know, a very detailed look over all the journeys and all the possibilities, all the states, did a lot of a lot of testing. I'm pretty sure I did at least a day worth of testing. Days worth of yes, testing. I, I would think that if if you're building a new site, not and you and you, you you didn't have to be as careful, you could, you know, read through the documents and kind of build a little sample a few test pages and get that done in a couple hours and that's just like you know not even trying to do it fast and then taking a few more hours like half a day to kind of like integrate it with your database and do everything else you want and um 
So I, I would I I think integrating with Stripe is just really easy. I mean, at, I mean, at a basic level. So one of the questions that came because um, there was obviously a lot of discussion on Hacker News about it, and one of the questions that people kept on saying is, it's a lot to pay two point nine percent. You know, like even, really, yeah. Well, because even PayPal starts giving you, you know, when you hit a thousand dollars a month or whatever, you start going down to two point two percent and one point nine percent or whatever. Is that right? Yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. What do you think? Well, I see. I, I didn't. I I never really had much of a benchmark in my head for what what is a good or a bad deal in terms of percentages. I mean, I always thought when I when I would hear like merchant count numbers, it always seemed like it was around three percent. So when I hear this two point nine percent, it seems like well, that seems like a ball the a good ballpark. Yeah. But maybe it is on the high side, but. The thing about Stripe that's so much better than merchant accounts is that you don't have to have a merchant account. You just set it up and get going as long as you yeah. have a bank account. I mean, you know, because I had to set up, um, I had more trouble getting our SendGrid account, you know, verified and, and validated or whatever. I had more trouble with them than I had with Stripe. Right. And Stripe's a payment system. It's all SendGrid is sending email. I mean, Webmaster Checks was a, a lot of work, a lot of emails and phone calls and faxing stuff. And I don't know, man, it's like I had to have like three, you know, passports and social security numbers and driver's licenses and utility bills. It's ridiculous. But Stripe, it was like, you know, nothing. So what Stripe allows you to do is get up and rolling and have a real, you know, credit card processing system in, in a matter of like hours. So that is fantastic. That's really worth it. That, that, well, that's what, I mean, that's what I said. I mean, and in the comments on my blog, um, someone said 2.9% plus 30%. Is that really worth it? And I said, well, you know, if you plus start... Three cent, plus 30 cents. Plus 30 cents per transaction, yeah. So I said, well, if you start turning over millions, then you can move to a merchant account and try to squeeze more revenue with lower fees, et cetera, et cetera. But Dan Grossman replied to me, millions, you only need a few thousand to make um, a traditional merchant account much cheaper than this. Even PayPal starts dropping its fees at three thousand per month to two point five percent, then two point two percent when you hit ten thousand a month. But what's the total? So if you're ten thousand, how much more are you paying? And for ten thousand, I don't know about how much more you're paying, but I mean, you are like, I guess ten thousand a month, right? Oh, so fourteen, so fourteen hundred dollars a year more. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, yeah, that's that. You're getting to the ballpark where you probably want to do something else. I mean. See, well, well, let's think the PayPal thing. I mean, but PayPal, you can't, you can accept credit card transactions, but you have to, you can't just, you have to do something else differently, right? You just, well, no, no, you, you can accept credit card transactions. That's not a problem. You just need to pay the $30 a month for the payment pro <laughs> option. We, the, we It's difficult for us. You couldn't do what we want to do because we want to charge people a couple of thousand dollars. PayPal doesn't make it that easy to do that with pre-approval kind of system. Really? You know Why? Uh, we've gone we've gone over this in previous shows, but the reason is is because they have a two thousand dollar limit, a two thousand dollar pre approval limit. So well, we're not doing pre approvals anyway. I know, but it's we've gone over it in previous shows. It's related to the <laughs> amount that you can do. Okay. I, I just wish you could just remember from previous shows. <laughs> All right, fine. Um, <laughs> we'd be using PayPal if we could. <laughs> well, no, because we we initially we were talking about using doing. Uh, prepayment stuff, but then we, as we understood how any food was going to work, that you you can't know ahead of time how much stuff is going to take. So we said, well, at least to start, we're not going to do any kind of pre-approval. I mean, we may later 
you know, maybe that's an option or whatever or something we, if we need to do, then we'll do. But if it's, if it's the case where you don't do any kind of pre-approval, you know, who knows, maybe PayPal is a better, a cheaper deal later, but I think Stripe's fine to start with. I mean, the reality is unless, until you're at some kind of a scale, I mean, it doesn't doesn't make make a difference. Just get something up simple. That's going to work. Whatever's the fastest. And that's, and I think that's what Stripe offers you. It's, it is unequivocally the fastest to just get it going. Yeah. Okay. I think we've done this topic. We've done it. We've done it. We've done it good. We've done it. So um, one thing I want to talk about just on that issue. So at the, at the, it, you, you added this trailer to your blog post that says, hey, you know, check, you know, subscribe to my RSS feed, check out Startup Guild, check out Plugio, check out any <laughs> It was like this huge list of things that you wanted everybody to do. Right. And, <laughs> and you, you're like, hey, because you sent me a, a Skype message. You're like, hey, Hit the front page of of, of um, Hacker News. Check how many people have signed up for Anyfo. Yeah. <laughs> it's like two people. Right. Then I go look at your page and I see these like all these call to actions, and I'm like, that's not really going to work, right? I mean, it just you're you're asking. So to your suggestion, your- I changed it to a single call to action and just said, okay, check out Anyfo, and then we got, uh, I think, what was it? What? So I mean, you got some. I mean, you know, we got, you know, it was better. It was probably four times better. Right. You know, so got eight. <laughs> but you know, still wasn't that much. But I think if you're writing blog posts, if you, if you want to write a blog post because there's a topic you want to share, then that's fine. If you, if you're, if you're writing it for the purpose of getting people to sign up for something, I think you're going to have a much better um, result. If you're in some way referencing that thing within the post, it has some, there's some context to it. If it's just like, like an ad at the, at, that happens to fall at the end of your article, I think it's a, it's a, it's a whole different thing. Um, and, I, and I just said, you know, I'm sure you wrote this just because you wanted to write it. But. Exactly. Yeah, I, I did. I didn't write it with a specific. And it's funny because when I've written stuff with a specific person in, uh, purpose in mind, it just don't seem to go anywhere. <laughs> so Yeah, I don't know. I think there's kind of an art to it. And, yeah. you know, there's always a little bit of randomness. I mean, I had, you know... Tons of people sign up to uh, the app, Epic Night email list when I wrote a couple, you know, especially the, um, the uh, you know, how I screwed up my Google acquisition article. Yeah. But, you know, based on that, we had that, we had that little exchange on Skype. I started thinking about it a little bit more and I said, you know, okay, so let's say that you have three, uh, three call to actions, three separate things you're asking people to do. And at best, you're going to have one third of the people sign up to one of each of those things, right? But the reality is you're going to have a certain amount of attrition as soon as you ask people to make a choice. So if you have like one thing versus two things, I mean, you know, you have that thing called tyranny of choice. We've talked about this before and there've been studies have done that, you know, and I think the, the, the example in the study, if I remember correctly, was like they had three new, uh, sample, um, samples of some food, like here are three new flavors, try them out as you're walking to the grocery store. And they had another booth at some other time that had like 30 flavors. And hardly anyone tried it when there were 30 flavors, but when there was three, a lot of people were up for it. And it's, it's, I think it's generally referred to as the tyranny of choice. The more choices you give people, the more there's just sort of this stress and, oh, like, I just don't know, I'm overwhelmed with options, right? And um, I wonder, I wonder if there's an equation where kind of like I would call it the, the, the choice equation or something where you have 
the the equation effect the attrition rate increases dramatically when you go from one you know from two options to three options to five options but that probably starts to flatten out at a certain number i mean what's the difference between 20 and 30 options right it's still kind of an overwhelming number well it's funny that you bring that up because that circles back to something an experiment that we did with plugio um which was the multi-dimensional pricing plans <laughs> yeah. it's like you had to be a super genius to even understand the the grid you initially created i was like what i was like what am i looking at all right was but- like, quick you have 30 seconds figure out this problem you know, like but ultimately we decided still there's a lot of choices like there's nine choices now so so whenever you go to the plug your plans and pricing page you make a selection okay i'm a power user i'm a business user i'm an i'm an agency and then you choose which which power user plan there's three plans for each so um with that experiment that we did, that we did, that I pushed through uh, to Plugio, it's now um, one, two, three and a half months since that was pushed live. And what's interesting is it it hasn't really changed the revenue. <laughs> like what? I mean, obviously, more people are signing up for higher for higher price plans, but overall, the average price point per user is give or take the same. I mean, it seems to be about fifteen dollars a user the average price point now. Whereas I guess it probably would have been $12 per user before or something like that. Well, let me ask you a question because I, I think we had a discussion, but then you didn't completely implement it a slightly different way. I mean, my, my suggestion was that you have an initial question, which, which what type of user are you? A power user? Are you an agency? Are you whatever? Mm-hmm. Individual user. And then, so it's only a choice of three options. And then you it select that, the yeah. options, and then you get three pricing plans. That's exactly what it is, yeah. It is. So you're never presented with this huge list. It's only... Th- is at most three options at any given choice point. No, no, exactly. I'll just ping you the link there. Well, you okay. know, it's got just three big buttons on the homepage. Power user, well, the, business. The thing I'd ask about that is, you know, what, um, I mean, what other factors have been changed? I mean, you know, when, for a test really to be valid, you have to kind of hold everything else constant. I mean, if, if you have other variables changing, then it sort of invalidates things because you don't necessarily know what's causing people, what's causing revenue to go up or down. I mean, maybe that would have caused revenue to go up. But you did two or three other things. You added new features. You did this. You did that. You did some of the marketing, and it and then it had a different effect. I mean, have you changed anything? Uh, yeah, I mean, the the problem is, is it's pretty woolly. Like, I can't tell you exactly what's happened. I mean, there's yeah. there's too much other stuff. But but if you if you look at the traffic, the general traffic, I mean, it's very similar. You know, mm-hmm. um, what what I can tell you is is that there was there seems to be a general decline in paid signups, but the money seems to have gone up a bit. Well, how is Plugio doing? Yeah, it's it's doing okay. Um, let me just uh, get there. Yeah, we haven't had a, uh, an update in a while. Well, December was basically it got to three in November. It got to three thousand three hundred revenue. Then in December, it ended up at three thousand two hundred revenue. And now it looks like this month is heading back for the three thousand three hundred. So it's sort of hovering around the where the attrition rate basically is in balance with the number of signups. So, you, you know, and it that. really flattened out after June, May, yeah. June. Yeah. And it really, not much has happened since then. I mean, it's just sort of, what do you think that, what do you, can you attribute that to? Do you have any thoughts? I don't, I don't. Mm. Have you been doing any, have you been working on it, improving the product? Um, I've just, I'm, I'm doing a lot now. Um, and obviously we're doing a lot with the design. I'll just ping you the, the stats there. You can click on that link. Um, so I'm doing stuff now, and we'll see over the next three months. I, I mean, I'd be very surprised if it didn't start to take off. 
We'll see. Why? We'll see. I don't have. I, the problem is, I don't have. I don't have arguments well formed for this current discussion. <laughs> you just feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. All right. All right. Next. Moving on. Okay. What else? What else is going on? Well, how how are um how are things going on? You know, you you started doing con- contract work with um. Or you, know, you had a contract arrangement with with Company Fifty Two. Yeah, that's going very nicely. And, thanks. Now, did you guys did you ever finalize and hash out the arrangement, the deal, and get it signed and everything for the plugio? It's hashed out, but it's not signed. And basically, the deal is um, a seventy thirty deal. So the revenue is seventy thirty to them, but the ownership is seventy thirty to me. Going forward, after after it earns t- after it earns ten. After I get ten thousand a month, <laughs> so the revenue is fifty fifty until I get ten thousand a month, and then it goes seventy thirty. Right, right. Now, well, now, why have you guys put this on paper? It is on paper. You said you haven't put, you haven't had anything signed. We haven't signed it, but uh, have we learned this lesson? We've, you and I've had some offline conversations about other things. <laughs> learned this the hard way. Get things on paper, sign it, even if it's like a two page agreement you know well but it's different because it's because the, the scenario here is different like they have everything to lose and i have everything to gain so it's it's their issue not mine mm, i don't know we'll i think, we'll think about it right if if i mean the deals that you've typically made are deals where someone's come along to you and said okay sign this i'm gonna i'm gonna give you x percent of this company um if you come on board for a low for a low rate to develop it right which is very different to this like I'm the one with the company. I'm the one who's going to them saying, "Will you help me develop it?" If they help me develop it and they don't sign the deal, you know, I'm the one who stands to profit. Yeah, but the problem is, is when people do a bunch of work and they don't get paid for it, then like they own it, that kind of stuff. There's, it's not clear who owns what, and that's why it's important to get things down on paper and get things signed. So there's a, a explicit dis- description of what you've agreed to that people's minds don't go, well, you said this and that. And you know, it comes out, you know, we go, Oh, we look at some kind of trail of emails. I mean, when you say it's down on paper, you mean that you've emailed back and forth about it? No, we have a, we have a document in Google docs. Um, that's got a very detailed description of what it is. And as far as I'm concerned, I'll stand by that. So yeah, well you'll stand by it. I mean, and I'm not saying, I don't know them. They may, they, they may be the most upright people in the world i'm just saying i'm just asking why didn't you print it out sign it and have them have a copy and sign it and put it in a file i, mean, I just, guess we're just gonna we're just gonna wait until it actually launches before we do that right you know all right well i'm backing off because you know everybody gets mad when i give you a hard time so. <laughs> well you are giving me up but <laughs> listen it's my turn to give you a hard time via my wife because she is going nuts at me about the fact that any food isn't released and she's 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 kind of stressing and you know pretty on a daily basis she's like look what is going on? Why can't you guys get it together? And Why is she stressing? Because she she really wants the business to happen. <laughs> so now that she's no longer working, she's uh, she's stressing about it because right. she didn't probably talk think much about it before, right? <laughs> That's a side effect of her. Well, no, no, because I mean we've been talking about it for so long, and she she just really wants us to get it out the door. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm with you. You know, I mean, the the, the really thing the thing that's just been slow about it is is just um, you know, having uh, so much consulting work. It's just. You know, as we've talked about before, where, you know, the only thing you really have responsibility-wise is, is, your, is your consulting work with Company 52. Right. Um, you don't have kids and, and anything else, so you can kind of say, well, you know, I can, there's this huge reservoir of time that you can just say, well, I'm just going to work, you know, whereas I kind of don't have 
as much of that. You know, there's, there's like, I have a very fixed amount of time that I have to, that I have available to work. And so that's why it's like, I don't always have like, Oh, I'm just going to work for 15 hours straight this weekend. I just can't do it. Cause yeah. I got like five different activities that I have to do with the kids. I mean, occasionally you can do it. And I just say, right, Sandy, take, you know, I'm just gonna, you know, work and take the kids, but it's hard to, hard to do that. So that's, that's slowed things down that, uh, you know, more than I'd like, but, um, I made a lot of progress, uh, over the last, uh, I guess what if well, I should say yesterday <laughs> worked on yesterday for uh, awesome. What, what were you working on? Well, um, is getting the uh, getting the dashboard sorted out, and um, you know the uh, setting up your your payout m- methods and uh, your expertise stuff and your um, your profile was kind of wasn't um, organized as well as it could be, but now it's it's all kind of together. So I'll give you a. Um, I'll get after the show. I need about an hour to uh, fix a couple more things, and I will give you the walkthrough, and she can see where it's at. Nice. Okay, so if you're giving me a walkthrough, how far? Like that walkthrough is for us to basically look at it together and say, okay, this needs to be done. This needs to be done. It- well, yeah, I mean, we can do that. I, I mean, I'll, I know some things you've done. You'll probably point out things that are obvious, but I, we can at least see where we're at. And- okay, cool, well, awesome. And and so, what are you thinking in terms of um, uh, getting our first few friends to come and look at it? I don't know. Well, let's talk about it first. Let's, you know, go through it. I hate making predictions. I don't want to. Yeah, <laughs> not so nice to be under pressure, huh? The thing is, I can't. I can't. Um, I can't commit. To, I can't commit to say, well, I can do this. You know, if I had like this huge reservoir of time, and I could say, well, it's going to be done by next Thursday or something, then I can just. What that means that no matter what, I can just forsake these other things. But I'm not in a position to forsake these other things. I can't tell Uber. Oh, guess what? I know I agreed to work 30 or five hours a week for you, but I can't do it because I'm working on info. Oh, by the way, I can't, uh, I can't take the kids to soccer practice and this and that and the other thing. Cause you know, I just can't, you know, yeah, it's not an option. So it's like, it's kind of the, uh, you know, it, you know, it's software, the guys, makers of doom and quake, right. They would never make it. They say, look, it's done when it's done. Done when it's done. Okay. Done Fair it's enough. Done it's released. It's not, not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to be a pain in the ass about it. I'm just trying to be honest. Like I could make up a number and then we could uh, pretend that it's real. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it's, um, it's coming together. You know, the, um, the last piece. So I've, I, one thing I, I spent a lot of time doing, which took up a lot of time was um, getting all these accounts set up and getting integrated with these services, whether it was SendGrid or Twilio or, um, webmaster checks and stripe and our bank account and you know that that actually took up a fair chunk of time um and uh everything is just about set up except for webmaster checks the final thing is i sent them you know after everything was done then i sent them this like hundred dollar set of fee and they still haven't gotten for some reason it was a week ago and i just emailed them they're like oh we haven't gotten yet i'm like well (sighs) okay (laughs) So as soon as I get the thumbs up from them, then that will be live and we can test um, sending out payments through, uh, through their API. Cool. So one, one other thing is um, just switching topics here. Um, so I'm selling my house in the UK and I'm about to get, well, I, the sale hasn't gone through yet, but I'm hoping that the sale will go through. And if the sale goes through, obviously I'll make a bit of money, a small chunk of change. And um, I've been discussing it with you and you said, well, 
because uh, I don't quite know when I'm going to put that into a ne- the next house, and I think it's going to be like a year's time or whatever. And, and with discussions with you, you were saying, well, you know, it looks like we might be going to war with Iran. Uh, looks like there there could be reasons why the oil, you know, oil would go way up and the price of oil would go up. In which case, there'll be a lot of inflation. So you could potentially, you know, that money could potentially be worth a lot less in a year's time. Yeah. I, see, I don't think um, I don't think you should worry about inflation in this context. Um, if the price of oil skyrockets because Iran shuts down the Strait of Hormuz, um, you know that. That doesn't really have anything to do with inflation. Um, inflation would be the result of something like the government um, printing a lot of money, I guess quantitative easing or whatever, to monetize our debt, which is like at what fifteen trillion. So that's a whole other problem. Um, and inflation is always something you need to be concerned with, especially when um, there's this much debt. But in regards to um, war with Iran, what I was suggesting is that um, you could, if you bought oil, and one way to buy oil would be, say, buy um, like an oil ETF, like a USO being one of the ETFs, okay, um, yeah. then that, that would be a, a way that you would actually um, offset any, um, any sort of economic downturn that would be the result of a war. Right. So if there was a if 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 there was a war like there was with Iraq in, in, in the sense it went full scale, I mean, if there was a war with Iran, it could be really, really bad. And Europe is already kind of teetering with all of, with all the debt problems it has. And the, the fundamentals of the U.S. economy isn't all that great. So if 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 things continue to escalate with Iran and it, and it really blew up, then that may severely impact the U.S. economy, and um, that could affect us in all kind of negative ways. But at least if you owned some amount of oil, your gains in that would sort of offset the uh, financial impact of the of an economic downturn. So, um, but with the Iraq war, um, I mean, if, if I had sold my house and had, for argument's sake, 50000 in the bank account, a couple of years later, after the Iraq War, I would still have fifty thousand in my bank account. I wouldn't have lost all my money. Right. So that so that's why it's not really, you know, the inflation isn't the issue. Inflation isn't what you're guarding against here. What you're guarding against is, is sort of like a sev- the potential for a severe recession. So, like, what happens if um, the recession is so severe that the plug your revenue starts to drop off, and that maybe company fifty two says, hey, we don't, we don't have as much consulting work. We're having a hard time getting money from our clients. And, and you know, all of a sudden you're having a hard time finding consulting work. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that could happen, right? So you want to figure out, like, what's your hedge in that kind of situation? And um, owning oil, especially if oil spikes to two or $300 a barrel or whatever, I mean, that would be a hedge. You would, even if you didn't invest, I wouldn't say, hey, take $50,000 and just buy oil. I'd say, you know, maybe, you know, 10 or 20% max um, of your portfolio, you, you might invest that in oil. And that would just, not that would totally offset, you know, severe economic downturn, but, you know. Are you, are you going to invest in oil? I actually already do. I think we, we actually have a fairly large um, amount of our portfolio is in oil. It has been for the last, um, I don't know, since probably 2005, I think. Huh. So, so 
have you ever thought, oh, I should sell it now, like when it was up at 200 a barrel? No, no. Well, I, I actually, my, my feeling is that if there's one thing that is going to continue to get more valuable over the next 10, 20, 30 years, it's going to be oil. I mean, because the world is running out and it's, you know, we're using more and more technology to try and get at harder to access oil, you know, whether it's, you know, a mile under, you know, under the sea or it's in the Arctic or whatever, but um, that just makes it more expensive. And countries like um, Saudi Arabia, I mean, there's rumors that they're peaking and I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I think that um, oil is just going to continue to go up in price. I can't imagine it going down. Whereas a lot of things that can go down very easily. But let's say it got to like $300 a barrel. Would there be enough liquidity where you could like offload the $5,000 worth that you'd bought? Would it be really easy to offload that in a, in a recession? I mean, sure. You know, I mean, so what happens is this, this stuff never goes straight up or straight down. And there's always, there are always buyers and sellers, especially with things like, you know, ETFs and futures and stuff. I mean, it's very liquid market. So the best spread is small. So you could sell it instantaneously. Unlike a house where it's like, hey, I want to sell my house. <laughs> and it's not really an easy thing to do. Um, if you want to buy or sell yeah, an ETF, it's just a click of a button and, you know, you're, you're, it's sold. And, um, but, um, yeah, I mean, and the thing is too, is that even if oil spikes in the short term, it doesn't mean it's just going to go straight up or even over, over the long term, I'm, it's going to go up and down because when oil goes up in price, then there's a, there's what's, you know, termed demand destruction. Like all of a sudden industries that relied on oil for their products, um, all of a sudden it drives their product pricing up so much that they look for alternatives maybe as inputs to their product or they stop buying as much. And then, and then industries start, certain industries or certain economies start to collapse and that decreases the demand for the oil. Hmm. And, uh, and then the, and then oil and this for any commodity will start to come down in price. So you'll see that happen. Another time is like when there's a big economic or market correction, like, oh, the overall market takes a hit because of, say, like the 2008 collapse. Well, all these portfolio managers and hedge funds and stuff, all of a sudden they're taking losses and they have to liquidate um, positions where they've made money on to pay for their losses and stuff. So all of a sudden now, you know, they're going bankrupt. So they're trying, they need cash to cover their margins. And so they'll just start selling something, you know, like oil that had gone up, in which case it'll start coming down price because all the people who own it are going broke. Okay. And uh, I guess the, the final part of this I would ask you is, do you think that someone as unsophisticated as myself <laughs> should really take that kind of a risk or should I just leave my money in the bank? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'd say, look, I, the, the, you know, w one thing is if you felt that this, what I'm suggesting that, you know, war with Iran is imminent. If you, if, if you believe that, not just because I'm convincing you now, but you did your own research and you're like, yeah, that, you know, that's, that's something you seriously believe is, is a high probability event, then, you know, yeah, you can go on E-Trade or whatever your broker is and buy, you know, USO, just like you're buying Google or something. And I wouldn't say put any substantial amount of your portfolio, you know, 10 or 15% or something. Um, and if you're concerned about inflation, which is something that is worth being concerned about, and you've talked about before, a good way of ensuring against that is, I think the, I think what they're called is tips, which are like these um, inflation um, insured bonds or something like that. They they they, they I, can't, I, don't, I don't know a whole lot about them, and I'm not sure exactly how the mechanisms work. But apparently, the, you, your returns are somewhat adjusted for inflation. There's there, there's like a built-in insurance for inflation. So 
and they're called tips, I think. Well, I would like to get um, listeners to to respond to this question and say what they would do with a chunk of money. Say, for example, 50000 Crowdsourcing your investment? Yeah, so basically, just, just to keep it so all I want is that it's, it's going to be still worth what it's worth today in a year's time. What's the best thing to do? Leave it in the bank, put a little bit of it somewhere, all help. And well, uh, let me advice. Think, is, is that all you want? I mean, you don't want to make any money because you're no. I don't care about making. I actually Savannah to make money. I don't actually care about making money as much as I care about not losing everything. Okay. Well, if, <laughs> if that's the case, then yeah. I mean, put like five percent in gold and ninety-five percent into like uh, inf- you know tips into the inflation, um, he- inflation uh, insured uh, bonds. Why would you, you just put all of it into the inflation insured bonds? Yeah, I have to double check. I mean, I think um, it depends on how how that works. I, I don't. You could do that too. Okay. Yeah, and that that's real, probably real conservative um, investment. But um, I don't know. I mean, one thing, I, two two things I want to say, just just sort of a qualifier here. I mean, a this is not investment advice I'm giving to our listeners. <laughs> well, because it, talking, but, I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not giving investment advice. In fairness, so, when you say things like this, and then I start mentioning them to Georgie, like she gets scared. <laughs> Because she's like, what are, we're doing? What with our money now? Don't, yeah, don't don't do this. Because I told you, if you go out and do your own research and you think that something that I said led you to an idea that makes sense that you really strongly believe in, then you know, do it. But don't do it because I don't <laughs> want you to come back to me like, oh, we lost well, all you, our money. you were right about, um, you know, you you kind of instinctually knew the time that you should have sold your house, but you didn't quite sell it in time, did you? But you knew that yeah. you should have. Well, it's the same thing. as like this. It's like I started reading about. Um, uh, reading from a lot of economists who were who were drawing, you know, you, you would see these graphs that would show median income versus ho- median, you know, the housing prices, and it was just totally off the charts. And and they were saying, you know, it was the very first time you start hearing about the subprime mortgage issue, and 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 and, the, and you go out to CNBC or something, like, oh, you know, the subprime mortgage is contained. It's it's this very small issue, and. The people, and that was like the mainstream press, right? Because the mainstream press generally cheerleads the market. They generally have this generally semi-upbeat, like, well, we have a very vibrant economy and all these kinds of things. But the real sort of sober economists were like, yeah, that's all BS. This thing is a very big deal and housing prices are going to plummet. And and I read that and I was like, whole, and I read like, you know, probably 20 articles on it over a period of two weeks. And I was like, just like I've done, you know, over the last, you know, few weeks on the, um, Iran stuff, I probably read like, you know, 30 articles from all kinds of different sources. And I'm just like, you know, I, you know, if, if once you read enough of that and you're enough different sources and you're, and, and the, and the sourcing is, is our legitimate facts, you know, from legitimate, they're legitimate sources. You're not reading some crazy guy reading from stuff from AP and Reuters and whatever, you know, it's just, you know, you just kind of like have to decide, you know, what you think and and the and the and the sub and the housing stuff i i called it you know and i would say like i was the i just was willing to look at alternate sources of information to make my own decision and i'm telling everybody i knew sell your house now <laughs> and everybody looked at me like i was crazy and i just was trying to you know i told sandy i said you know we were uh, we were on a drive back from her parents and this is like in october or something of uh, 2007 and i said you know i said we need to sell our house right <laughs> Now. Oh, God. She's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, listen, you know, we're, we were driving across the desert. And I just kind of looked up and I just said, we need to talk. And I go, I said, this housing stuff is going to blow up and we need to get out right now. The train is leaving the station. 
We grab our bags and run. We can get on the last car, but we have to run now. And she's like, well, what? Are you sure? And I, and I gave her all my reasons and I explained all the numbers. And I said, you know, I think this is the case. And she's like, well, you know, it's going to take time because, you know, we got to like, you know, we got to paint and we got to do this. I'm going to find an agent. And I just said, look, I'm just telling you, <laughs> this is about how much time we got like six weeks. <laughs> and, uh, and I explained it to her and she's like, I see what you're saying. Fine. We'll sell our place. But I'm just telling you, she's like, it's just going to take some time. And I was like fire sell, man. I was like, we need to take what we can get. And sure enough, it took us, you know, we didn't actually get an agent, get it on the market until January you know, because of the holidays and, and you have to get an agent and they have to come by and talk to your place and they say, okay, well, you got to, this is how you're going to stage it and this is what you need to paint. This is what you need to do and get it listed. And then and by that time, it's too late. It's too late. So do you think we're in the same position as that uh, six-week mark now regarding this, all this other stuff? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, the first positive thing I read today was about how the Washington is sort of trying to, is trying to back Israel off. And trying to, because Israel's pushing really, really, and when I say Israel, I mean, you know, Netanyahu and their yeah. crew. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are at least half, if not more, Israelis are like, do not want any part of a, a war with Iran. But, um, you know, because it's going to be a disaster for Israel. I mean, they're going to get bombed and missiles coming into like populated areas. It's going to be an absolute disaster for them. They, you know, and, um, you know, so, uh, but, I mean, it, it, I, I mean, I, I, I give this thing like a two-thirds chance. I mean, it's a third, 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 there's a third, you know, of a chance that I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope people look at me a year from now and go, hey, Jason, you're an alarmist, eh, you know. But I think it, you could, we could wake up tomorrow morning and we find out that um, some U.S. ship or something got attacked or Israel went off and, and, and started sending, you know, uh, um, you know, attack on Natanz and Boucher and these other nuclear facilities in Iran, but it may, it may happen in six, nine months. I mean, it's hard to say. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just something it's like, it's like, just hurry up and wait things. It could happen anytime now we're deploying. We have all these forces and all these ships that are over there, but I don't think we're going to want to attack until we have all our pieces in place. You know, we're going to, they're going to want the USS Lincoln to be over. They're going to want everything deployed, but Israel may not wait. They may force our hand. Okay, moving on to something lighter. (laughs) (laughs) For this week in geopolitics. (laughs) Moving on to something lighter. um, Robert, uh, sorry, Robert Ahern uh, sent a real nice email saying that he liked the podcast. And um, that, you responded to that. And in your response, one of the things he was talking about was like 3D 3D printing. And you Mm -hmm. showed uh, makerbot.com. And I, I went and had well, a look around makerbots.com. About, he listed um, something called... Um, RepRap? Was it called RepRap? Yeah. And I said, oh, that sounds really cool. I, I think I've, I, something I've heard of similar is, is MakerBot. So RepRap is a free th- desktop 3D printer capable of printing plastic objects. Now, I guess it's free because you build it yourself. Um, but uh, MakerBot... That's that's a very professionalized 3D printer system, and it was cool. And there was a there was a nice interview um, with the guy on the the CEO of it on the the, Col- the Colbert show, uh, mm-hmm. the Colbert Report, and it's very funny. And but it's just <laughs> it's just really cool. I mean, what you can do, and I think it, it is it's a new revolution, isn't it? Really, 3D printing. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, it seems like every couple months I I see a new company entering that space. It seems like there's a lot of a lot of companies that are trying to do the 3d printing a lot of startups 
and it seems pretty cool. I mean, I don't, I'm not really clear on what you would use it for. Um, but unless you're like one of these people that are kind of like, you kind of like a work, you know, people have their own workshop and they're really good with their hands. They make all kind of cool stuff. You could fashion interesting 3d objects, um, that you might use to build stuff. If you're not doing that kind of stuff, I'm not really sure what you'd, what you'd make with it. Um, well, I think it's pretty amazing if you, I mean, if, if you're an inventor, you know, if you've got an inventive mind, that's what I mean. That's yeah. right. So, I mean, so and, and maybe for your kids the, as well, the, you know, you use like a 3d graphing, like a, like a CAD program. Yeah. You design it and then it feeds the instructions into the, to the, to the contraption, the maker bot, you know, whatever thing. And it makes the, it makes it right. So on the, on the Colbert report, they basically did a, they, they scanned in his head. <laughs> <laughs> and they printed out um different versions of his head like they did one of his head where it had wings another one where his head had octopus legs <laughs> uh, that's funny but um yeah yeah that's cool yeah I um they, i don't have much to say about it other than that's pretty neat oh okay well speaking of toys um so my son colby who is uh seven it, he just is a huge, he's just a nut about like airplanes and rockets and helicopters, mm-hmm. easily anything that flies. And we've, we've gotten him two different, like these like remote control little helicopter things. Oh yeah. And, and they are re- and they've really sucked. <laughs> They're the kind of thing that has like almost no control. Like you really can't control how it flies too well. It just kind of I don't know. It just kind of flies, goes a little nuts, and then it crashes to the ground, and the batteries last, like, you know, you know, it's like after a couple of days, you're starting to like run out of juice. Mm-hmm. And I was, I kept telling Colby, I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe we should look into getting, because he, he, he had, he had saved up some money from like you know, the Christmas money and money he'd earned for different, different things, and he thought he's, he's, and he's like, well, I want to, you know, I want to get. Uh, you know, I want to buy one of these helicopters. He's looking on Amazon. And I was like, you know, I was like, I don't want to buy another $30 piece of crap helicopter because it's just going to bum him out, you know? And so I, 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 I went on the web and I looked around a little bit and there was this one site called xheli.com, xheli.com, which is, I guess, for really serious hobbyists who, do, who, who buy this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it turns out that one that... I'm trying to figure out which one it was. I'll put a link up to it, but it's, it's made out of metal actually. That, it, that, it's, it's so funny because um, it's actually so like, I'm pretty sure I know exactly the one you're talking about. Cause my friend in, in the UK uh, did research, did research. It's called a Robocopter. Is that the one? And um, it costs around $70. It's made out of metal and it has full controls. And I've, I've been trying to buy the same it, thing myself. One of them on here. I want to say it's the SR10. I, I, I'll find out which one it was. I'll put a link up to it. But XLE has a ton of them. And it turns out it was like, it was $160 and now it's on for like 29 bucks. 29 And it had like five stars, like 400 reviews. Yeah. Something like that. And um, so we got it. And like two days later, because we have our Amazon Prime thing, and the thing is amazing. I'm pretty sure it it's the same one. It is amazing how how like it it, it flows. It, it it you can control it so accurately. It's going up and down. I'm turning and backwards and forth. It's kind of like what you had dreamed. Like you know when you read the description, like this is how it's really gonna be, and it never is. Yeah, it's actually how it, it, the thing is. It's awesome. Is it? I'm just gonna ping you a link and tell me if it looks like this. Um, 
Look at the one I said. It's kind of. Well, look at the one I just sent you. Yeah, I see it. Nice. Anyway, um, so if you have a kid anywhere from, I don't know, as young as five to maybe 45, it's a highly recommended gift. Oh, that looks, that does look good. And so do you, do you assemble it in any way? No, no, there's no assembly required. And it took like, it'll fly for about five minutes and then you get a recharge for 45. But for $8, you can buy a higher power battery that we haven't used yet. I mean, because we just got to take the other one out, but it's new one in. But apparently, according to reviews, you, it will allow it to fly for 15 to 20 minutes. Does it like the, does the controls stick when you leave them there so that you don't have to keep on pushing your finger? You know what I mean? You can take your finger no, off. No, it's more like the kind of has like the two little, I don't know, things that sticks that you move around and pretty neat. Yeah. Oh, cool. I was impressed. I was <laughs> impressed because I was looking at buying like a more expensive one because I told Kobe, I said, look, I tell you what, if you save up a certain amount of money, I'll, whatever you save up, I'll pay half. I'll match you. Nice. I'll match you, you know? And, um, and Sandy was like, well, I don't know about spending all that money and I don't know if that's a good idea and this and that. She's like, I found this one on Amazon and it got really high. And so I was like, all right, fine. And ordered it and amazing, amazing. So if you have a kid, it's just, I mean, it's just so fun. Colby's really good. Like have the thing like go forward, kind of hovering on the ground, go up, land on something, moving around, kind of chasing around, chasing his sisters around with it. It's pretty cool. So uh, did you see in Google Plus, um, Alex, one of the things that people asked us, uh, something people asked us about is when are we going to um, interview Uber? Right. Yeah. And Alex posted up a link to a TechCrunch article about Uber being in hot water in uh, Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the, 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 I think, who is it? Is it the mayor of Washington or something like that? It's basically. No, it's the commissioner of the D.C. cab. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that? Well, it turns out that, that it's, he's, he's completely full of it. Um, I think that there's a TechCrunch article even about it, basically. So what happened is they did this, you know, they arranged a sting where, you know, the, the cab commissioner <laughs> himself has a, you know, the Uber app and he gets and takes a car ride and they go from apparently from D.C. to Virginia, or apparently, which is like cabs aren't allowed to do. And then they say, ha, here's a citation. and We're going to pound your car. What turns out that it's not even illegal that the guy's full of, he doesn't even know any better. I mean, the guy's like 80 and apparently he's kind of clueless and he's just sort of pandering to his, but what, uh, like what, what's his issue with it? Is, is it because it's going against the regulated cabs? He doesn't want the competition against the regulation. Or yeah. What? Yeah. Well, you know, he, he's sort of like the commissioner of the cabs, right? I mean, first of all, if you're a bureaucrat, you want things under your control and I'm sure he's sort of to some degree pandering to his, you know, the, the stuff that he's, his, I wouldn't say are his constituents, but the people he manages trying to protect the cab industry. Cause I always and, thought that that was just about whether you could hail the cab or not. Like the, the, those kind of special cabs were the hailable yellow cabs versus private cabs where you have to call up and get them. Yeah. No, let, let me just say, I'm not, I haven't, you know, I've just had like a 10 minute conversation with Curtis about it. Who's the um, VP of engineering. You know, he's, you know, he's up there at Uber HQ. He knows everything that's going on. And I, I, one of our, um, who was it? Um, who was it? Who sent the, article to us that was alex no no um alex gemmel no we had um we got an, I got an email from one of our listeners um robert i think i, I can't remember i'd have to let me oh well alex i guess alex also mentioned it then with it through google plus because remember you, you posted on google plus about the interviews we had scheduled and uh, yeah couple, couple oh no said it's that, um william radcliffe william right, radcliffe right. um sent the article it was, it was an article in the washington post about it and uh-huh. um and so then I, I asked Curtis about it. I'm like, whoa, so what's going on? You know, like, oh, is the Washington, I mean, is the D.C., you know, uh, Uber 
you know, situation can be a problem. He's like, no, no, it's turns out they even, I guess TechCrunch even posted, cut and pasted the whole section of the regulations at DC. That's completely, it is completely legal that the guy just doesn't even know the law. <laughs> so Travis is over there and Travis is just gonna, you know, he'll blow right through that. I mean, he, the, he's the kind of person like who just loves this kind of stuff. Right. Well, no, no press just, is bad press, right? What's that? No press is bad press. Yeah, but he just, he loves to fight bureaucracies <laughs> and incumbents and disrupting industries. And he just, I mean, he'll go toe to toe with, with those people. And, 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 you know, they're, they're, the, the guy doesn't have a clue. And it's, it is completely, it is what Uber is doing. Uber's business is completely legitimate. There isn't even, it's not even in the gray area. And the guy's just clueless. So it's not an issue. So did you see that um, link, the top 1%, what jobs do they have? Right, right. Yeah, I did see that. I saw that this morning. I was kind of surprised that there was such a large spread of jobs. <laughs> I thought it was going to be, you know, just bankers. Well, the top 1% isn't that much money. It's a whole household income of 380000 right? Yeah. That's not a huge sum of money, especially if you're living in San Francisco or... Um, New York or LA. I mean, if you have two people making, you know, hundred ninety thousand, I mean, that's two people who are sort of people who are more senior level at, at whatever job they have. You know, people in their forties and fifties who have, you know, who are professionals. I mean, they're going to make, you know, hundred fifty to two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and they're not like, you know, it's not like kind of bankers that are hedge fund. They're paying themselves fifty million dollar bonuses. I mean, just like the article we initially read, I mean, there's a big difference between the 1% and the 0.1%. Yeah, yeah, the 0.01%. yeah. Oh, 1%. I mean, yeah. they're completely, they're not even related. I mean, the, the, the one percenters are, are just the professional management class. They're not, you know, the oligarchy. It's not, you know, the people who are going to, um, what's the, what's the big meeting over in Europe that they have? Um, Bilderbergers. Davos and stuff. And, you know, it's not. You know, it's yeah. just a different world. So, well, yeah, be- I was, was going to say, because the way that they've, uh, just for anyone who wants to go, just Google the top 1%, what jobs do they have? Um, and uh, it's a New York Times article, and they've kind of got a, got a kind of, I guess it's a, what would you call this, like a map or a graph or something, where they yeah. show you, but, but it's all split up by the number of people there are in that profession. But I bet you if they split it up by the number of wealth, it would probably be like, you know, 0.1% and then 99.9% everyone else kind of thing. You, yeah, you, I mean, if you took if you took like the point oh one percent, not the, not just point one percent, but the point oh one percent, right? And you said, all right, what do those people do? Um, yeah, I mean, you have a lot of professional athletes and entertainers and actors and stuff, producer, you know, people like that. And but you'd also have, I mean, look, I, there's no problem with you know because I, I, there's now there's getting this sort of like um, I don't know, it's a kind of almost like a pejorative to be part of the one percent to make any money, which is, I think. There's nothing wrong with people doing well and being successful, but the problem is, is that there's a lot of people, particularly in Wall Street, who've made who've who've made a lot of money, and I'm particularly about, particularly talking about the investment banks who made a lot of money and took a lot of bailouts and paid themselves obscene bonuses based on taxpayer, you know, bailouts. I mean, though that's that's what's make that's what's obscene. That's what's really pissing people off. It's still two. It's two and a half million people in the top one percent. Yeah, I mean it's not it's a lot of people. I mean, if if you're on the top, if you're on the if you're in the and I know we've had variations of this conversation before, so maybe I don't want to go too into it, but if you're making three hundred and eighty thousand dollars as you know, a family of four or five and you're living in, 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 in New York 
or San Francisco. I mean, you don't want to have like a big house or anything like that. You, you may not even be able to afford much of a house in the city. You'd probably have to live in a, an apartment or, I mean, it's not, it's not that you don't have a nice life, but you're not, you're not like rich. You're not like living the high life. You know, you're, you know, if you're paying for, you're saving up for college and, you know, if you have to pay for private school and you got to, you know, save for retirement. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it's not, not that much. I mean, it might seem like a lot to somebody who's, um, you know, 25 and single and making $60,000 a year, but, you know, when they only have to pay for themselves and they have roommates and stuff and, you know, it's, they don't have a mortgage and they don't have to, they're not really saving for those kinds of things that, you know, it's, it might seem like an obscene amount of money, but all right. also a lot, a lot of this taken away from taxes. I mean, almost half of that is gone. All right. So have you got anything that's very light and fun and flirty? Oh, and then by the thing, I just realized I'm, a, I'm only in the top 10%. <laughs> I'm like, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even the top five. Yeah. Like I started to like, man, I'm like, screw this article. <laughs> like, oh man, that's weak. Of course, we're a one we're a one income family because Sandy doesn't work. So mm. you know, it makes that makes it a lot tougher. But um yeah, you know, one I have a bunch of random things to talk about. One is um I, I was kind of um the this there's an idea I had that was spurred by this um this sort of graph of logical fallacies. Right. And I, I, I don't always like, I kind of try not to just post things on um, Google plus. It's like, Hey, check out this cool link. It just, it's just, it's like too easy. You know, I think you can do that sometimes, but you're not really adding a whole lot of value when that's all you're doing. I feel like you should, you should try and bring, bring a little more. And so I was like, what can I say about this? I mean, I don't want to just say, Hey, this is neat. And, so, so I was just trying to come up with something, you know, to say, and maybe that's not great either. It's like just filler, <laughs> but I was like, I need to come up with something that's kind of clever. And I said, well, wouldn't it be cool if like you had a website where, um, just like you submit articles, um, on Cacker News or Dig or something where maybe you submit an article and you say, right, here are the 10 articles or 20 articles. And what we're going to do is anybody who's registered on the site will analyze it for logical fallacies. Okay. Yeah. And like a logical fallacy could be, um, you know, ad hominem attacks or uh, appeal to authority or just, 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 just like, you know, 70 or something of these related um, fallacies, straw man, red herring, everything. And it would be interesting because, you know, you read these articles that are in, you know, legitimate publications, you know, whether it's Harper's or New York Times or Atlantic Monthly or whatever. And, but they're still, oftentimes littered with logical fallacies. I mean, once I started paying attention to logical fallacies, I would go to the Wikipedia page and start reading through some of them. And I'd read through articles. I'm like, wait a minute, that's a fallacy. Wait a minute, that's a fallacy. That's just a just fallacy. recap. What exactly is a logical fallacy? Okay, so like, let's talk about the appeal, the appeal to authority, or which is a related one is like, I can't remember, it might be like appeal to the masses. So it's like, well, everyone believes this. Everybody knows this is true. Okay, so when, when someone true. says that, everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. or so and so is an expert, and he says true. This is true. Right. You see that happen all the time. And just because somebody's an expert doesn't mean it doesn't prove it's true. It may it may increase the chances and make it more believable, but it doesn't prove that it's true. That's not a, that's not a logically. It doesn't it doesn't follow just because a smart person or an educated person in that field says it's true that it is true. It's just so when people say logical fallacy, are they always talking about something that's been written in an article to help them prove a point? That's right. So, for instance, and a lot of times it's used 
to mislead people. I mean, for instance, the straw man, it's like, well, I'm going to find this article. I'm going to come up with this, this sort of argument that I, I think it represents the, the other side, but it doesn't really. It's not what the other side is even saying, and then I'm going to tear it down. That's the sort of the straw man right. argument. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's kind of hard. And there's there's a lot of ones that are based on probability, and you know, I think there's ones that are like assuming something's true and they're arguing against it when you know there's you, there's no way of even proving that is true. And I, I feel like one of the biggest problems that's happened in our country is our um, is that the investigative journalism has just fallen off a cliff. There's not very many true investigative journalists that are just going after things. You have a lot of, and also you have a lot of columnists that are just writing things. And I'm not so sure that they're being taken to task either. The, the, the investigative journalists aren't taking our politicians to task. They're kind of like, it's almost like a captured industry. They, right. You know, they go to these press dinners and they're so, you know, the press corps is so, um, you know, it's like they're almost like stenographers. You know, they just say, well, so-and-so says this and so-and-so says that. And it's like, no one's, no one's calling BS on anything. And I remember reading about that we're talking about like how back in, in the in, in during Reagan's presidency there there was this a bunch of the journalists got together and they just said they they call themselves the truth brigade so if Reagan at one of these press conferences was to say something and they didn't think it was true they would you know the person would ask about it and if he tried to blow them off the next person another another person from press court would follow up on it so they wouldn't let him off the hook yeah right and then I guess they got a lot of complaints in from the public thought thinking that was disrespectful and so like the you know, whatever the the people who ran the you know these um you know these news uh, organizations basically someone to cut it out, and you know there's a whole. I mean, I, I'm not a I haven't read about it recently, so I, I might be a little foggy in the details. But essentially, a lot of our journalism has been very um. Tor- but don't you think a little bit of that's made up for with kind of people who are independent bloggers and WikiLeaks and things like that? Barely, barely, because you think about it. I mean, you know, the the people who read sort of alternative sources of information don't just watch CNN or ABC News. I mean, it's a minority. And if, even if like 3 million people think a lot of the stuff that you're reading in the news is kind of BS, it's not enough to, to move the needle. It's not a big deal. Right. Um, what, what's a big deal? What most people in the country believe is what's on ABC News, CNN, and Fox. Fox. That's what people believe. Yeah. You know, and so anyway, in addition to the toothless thing, I thought, you know, it would be interesting is that you crowdsource the criticism, the critiquing of these columnists, these analyses that you see. You said toothless. What was toothless? Toothless. The investigative journalism is toothless. It doesn't, they don't, uh, they don't really go after, you know, the, the government, you know, when they think that things might be BS. I mean, there was an article recently by a, um, an editor at the New York Times. He's like, you know, and I, what was the question? He goes, um, if I can find it, he says, um, should the Times be a truth vigilante? Which is, if the New York Times, if some, if, if, let's say, a, you know, one of these uh, presidential candidates or, you know, even the current administration says something that's patently false, should they call them out on it or not? Do they just quote, well, they said so and so. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think they need to be doing that because here's the problem. If, for instance, you have both the Republicans and Democrats agreeing on something like that Iran is developing nuclear weapons, even if that's not true, they're not going to call each other out, right? There's no political gain for either side. And so there's no truth getting out to the public. And that's a problem. And that's what happened with the Iraq war. 
So, so, but who, like, who's sort of saying that the New York Times should be doing this, and are they behind well, the New, it? Was the New York Times um, editor it was just sort of in a, in, a, in, a, in a? I guess it was sort of like a New York Times. You know, you know, sometimes these these um, these uh, magazines will have like a blog section to their to their site. But don't they have like sponsors that they need to they need to kind of cater to? Yeah, you know, and that's true. And so I think what happens is that these um, these journalists and like even something like New York Times, which is supposedly the paper of record. I mean, they will call them out to a degree, but they won't call out some. They don't want to call out like the administration or whatever to such a degree that they will lose access. But they all they will call them out, and you know enough times that you know it's almost like they're doing like they're short of doing some investigative work. But they 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 kind of play softball. I mean, they kind of do they do it sometimes, but sometimes they don't. Right. And you know, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, most of the and it depends. Sometimes they do a good job, and sometimes they don't at all. And I think the Iraq War was the big, you know, the one that everyone can agree was a. You know, I don't think it's a lot of it's controversial to to say that the press completely fell down on that job. You know. Um. So anyway, I, I just think that if we had like a, uh, um, like a fallacy a site, logical fallacy. So what would happen is that if you had, anyway, if you had a site like that, it would um, it would help fight against things like that. So if you had articles from these major magazines and you had like, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people critiquing them for fallacies and fact checking, sort of a crowdsource thing, and then uh, then anybody could see and say, oh, you know, you could have like a um, browser, browser, um, like in. an add-in, like an extension. So basically you select the text and then you say, this is not, this is not true because of such and such a reason. Yeah, like you could say this is not this fact is false, and you could cite the a, a link to the actual fact for correction, and you could say this argument is false. This is a logical fallacy. This is a logical fallacy, and then what you could have is you could have moderators on the site or people. You know, I don't know exactly. Maybe something similar to what Wikipedia does, where you have like people who have more karma, or more. You know, that's central. interesting. I mean, it's basically making the whole internet like a meta internet. It's like making a meta internet about the internet. Yeah, sort of a critique on it, and I think. What would be cool is if you had like a browser extension so that if you went to one of these sites, you know, if you went to like a New York Times, you're looking at an article and like a little button on your, um, on your toolbar goes yellow or red based on the number of fallacies or, or, or incorrect facts. That does sound like something that could be a business, but I mean, where, what would be the, are you thinking purely nothing to do with being a revenue generating really? thing? Yeah, I was thinking more like a Wikipedia thing. I mean, it's less about, you know, yeah. this is about making money, is this is about um helping helping the world get closer to the truth. Yeah. Because I think when the world is misled, then uh then you know things like, you know, wars of aggression happen. It isn't like after, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of people have been killed and trillions of dollars have been spent like, oh geez, oops, our bad. You know? Yeah. Maybe anyway. Maybe the so Wiki, was, Wikimedia Foundation could, uh, you know, be involved in sponsoring something like that. Yeah, you, no, I don't think you just build it. Just build it? You build it, you get it working, you get traction, and then you go and you dock. All right, well, we don't have enough time to do that, so. <laughs> That's later. <laughs> All right, well, talking about, um, the, I guess, changing the internet, um, on the January, January the 18th, the internet's going to go black because of the SOPA protests. Um, yeah. I'm going to be, I'm going to put it on Plugio. Um, it's, it's just, a, I mean, well, there's one thing, uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but you just put in a JavaScript on your site and then it just makes the site, it makes the site go black. But then if people click anywhere, they can get through. 
So um, you can get that JavaScript from soperblackout.org. And uh, if you go to soperblackout.org, you'll see what it looks like and you can get it straight from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I hope it works. I mean, you know, it's, an, it's sort of an asymmetric tactic. Having, you know, it's like rather where you have a lot of these um, pro SOPA companies that have invested a lot of money into lobbyists and campaign donations to get the politicians to listen to them and convince them that their argument was a, a good one and to get the, the law to, you know, the, the bill to, you know, pick up some real momentum. But, you know, and, and my initial idea was like, look, if, if we don't do anything, if these big Silicon Valley companies don't step up and start putting some money into this and, and trying to protect the internet. Um, then we're going to be in trouble. Now, I'm hoping that I hadn't really considered something like this, sort of an asymmetric attack, which is the idea of like, you know, I don't know which company's going to do it, like, you know, Wikipedia or Facebook or who, who else doing it? I think it's, uh, I think it's Wiki, Wikipedia, Reddit. Um, there's a list. There's a list. I don't have the list to hand. I mean, it could work. An asymmetric attack like that could work. But see, I'm not sure Reddit matters because the people on Reddit, most people who read Reddit know about this. Right, it doesn't matter. You, what you need is you need, you know, your, you know, your grandma, grandma and grandpa know about it, right? You need the people who don't, who aren't technically savvy to understand what the issue is. You need people who are on. You need Facebook to do it. You need Google to do it. So, so you think? So you think as an asymmetric attack, it could make a difference? I, I freaking hope so. I think it'd work if you get. The participation of sites like uh, Google and um, Facebook. If you if you don't if you don't get the, the the sites that are sort of facing mainstream America, not the you know technosphere, then it doesn't matter. Because if you're just if it's Reddit and Hacker News and Twitter, maybe maybe not Twitter, maybe Twitter would make a would would make a big deal would help. But if you have just the tech people, I mean, they already know about it, so it's just, just preaching to the choir. Well. I guess, but what about right. lots of little sites like Plugio, you know? What do you think about something like that? It helps a little bit, yeah. I mean, every little bit will help. But um, I think um, the P- I don't think there's going to be a lot of customers, Plugio customers aren't going to be aware of the soap controversy. Right. I think, and that's what you're looking for, is you want people who aren't aware of it to suddenly become aware of it and be, you know, reasonably upset about it. Well... You know? I, you'd be surprised, actually. I mean, there's there's not a lot of Plugio customers anyway, but the ones that the ones that are customers, um, they they don't seem they're very um, tech savvy to me. Oh well, maybe yeah. so. Well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, every bit helps. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're doing something is good. I mean, um, did you see there was an article in Los Angeles Times? Uh, Dropbox inventor determined to build next Apple or Google. Yeah, I saw that title. I didn't read it. The thing about it is, is I mean. I didn't read too much it too much, but just that statement, you know, doesn't sit well with me. Like, what? Well, why would you just say? I mean, I I kind of used to feel that way myself. Like, you know, oh, I want to build the next Google, but it does seem really kind of a silly, silly viewpoint. Why would you do that? I mean, just just build something really great that's going to delight. That? Okay, uh, so reading from the article um, says both Apple Steve Jobs and Google Sergey Brin sounded out Houston about buying Dropbox. But Houston says he's determined to build the next Apple or Google not to sell out to them. So I guess they're kind of paraphrasing him, paraquoting him. But uh, I mean, that, just the point is, is just to me, that seems like a strange statement. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, first of all, um, 
you know, if, if, if you haven't done anything, right, you're just like, you know, us in the point that you don't have a, like a, 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 a successful business yet. It's like, I'm going to build a billion dollar company. You, you sound like an idiot. Yeah. You know, you know, just getting from zero to a self-sustaining company that's profitable. I mean, that's enough for a day's work. You know, I mean, that's, that's a lot. And saying that I want to build a successful company um, is, 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 you know, that's, that makes a difference is ambitious. But Dropbox has already done that. Now, his next goal is, okay, you know, they, they make, they're probably making good money. They have a lot of users. They're global. It's like, okay, do we want to just sell it to Apple or Google or whatever and then kind of disappear? Or do I want to be a big player myself? And so I don't think from his, when you're standing where he is, I don't think it's too strange to think, yeah, you know, that he doesn't, saying that he doesn't want to sell out, that he wants to be a, a major self-standing company is... No, yeah, I, I mean, the truth is, I mean, they've they've paraphrased him. You, you don't really know what he said, so. Yeah, Probably, so uh, I don't, I, yeah. But I'm glad, you know, because I think a lot of times, you know, these entrepreneurs and they build stuff and, um, you know, they sell out so quickly. It's like, it's almost like they build to flip. You know, they're looking to sell something in a few years. And, you know, I mean, I, I, there's nothing wrong with that, but hopefully, you know, someone somewhere is going to build a company that's going to stick around longer than four or five years and become a, you know, Something significant, significant because all these companies get absorbed. That it get absorbed by these well, big Facebook companies. Facebook did it. Yeah, Facebook did it. Twitter's done it so far. You know, I mean, occasionally, you know, they do, but uh, a lot of them, they just when they do sell, they kind of disappear, and that's it. That's Has last Twitter done it? I mean, I thought everyone had left Twitter. Everyone who started it had left. Well, it doesn't matter. That doesn't mean who's still there. I mean, it's just like, is it? It hasn't been sold to Google or Facebook itself. Right. It's still a self-standing company. I mean, we're not talking about. Because those are two different discussions. Like, how many of the original people are there? Or is it a self-standing company? So, uh, one thing I just realized, I, you know, you sent me that link to that Robocopter? Yeah. Earlier? I just looked at it. It is very similar to what Colby has. I think maybe there being something similar is being manufactured and being sold under different brand names. Yeah, because I, I, I used that and it was just awesome. Like, you just had very fine control over it. You could, like, turn it a little bit left, then tip it forward, then stop it, then bring it down. It was really good. Yeah, that was amazing. You know, I want to give an update on Epic Night. Oh. I haven't okay, talked about Epic Night in a while, have I? So it's still trucking along. Um, a guy and I work on it probably. We probably work on it three to three. Well, it, it's up and down, but, you know, three or four days a week. And um, it was a little rough through the holidays and everything, but it's still alive and kicking. We work on it and, you know, we're working on it and pushing it forward. So, um you know that moving the whole thing from PHT to Java, to running client side JavaScript was a humongous change, and the uh, I guess just getting the last bit of it moved over just was uh, almost a little more work than I anticipated, as seems to be the case with most things I work on, I guess. But anyway, it is still live. Fantastic. So um, hopefully, I have some kind of have more of an interesting update you know, another month or two, but, uh, well, it's interesting. You should say that. I mean, not, I just, with Plugio, I've been working on moving the friend finder functionality from the back end to the front end to JavaScript, completely mm-hmm. moving it to the JavaScript so that basically, uh, I quite like the idea of doing that because then even if you have a thousand people using it, it's not, it's not costing anything. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, it, it is. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I like, I, I find JavaScript, um, easier to debug because if you're if you run a client side then you run it through the the debugger much yeah. more easily yeah um it's just 
it's just a, it's i mean i know you can have service uh, you can have sort of php debuggers and stuff but there's nothing that i that i found that i like that works really well on a mac and um so plus i plus the thing with javascript is that uh you could always run node on the back end and move whatever percent you know pieces of it to the front and back without having to change the code that's cool i'd, I'd have to do a little bit of node to get into that and to understand that and believe that I'm, yeah. I'm sure that it's true, but you know how you need to know it for yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's just job. It's, you know, it's just sort of the same thing. But um, but anyway, but what I would say, though, is that that wasn't the motivation. The motivation of moving it to the client side, it was, it was just running way too slowly. And by moving it to the client side, it's, it's instantaneous. It's super fast. Well, so, that's cool. And, you know, makes the, because sometimes it would generate a new version of the application. You just sit there waiting for like 30 seconds. Like, what, what's going on? You know, that's just ridiculous. I mean, sometimes it'd be like, you know, you, it would do it in a second, but it was just like, it was hard to predict what was going to happen. I think it was pro- probably had to do with it running on a shared host, but mm. still you could tell that you could easily run into scalability problems if that was happening. The, um, <clears throat> the other thing I want to mention was, um, uh, is I, Guy Owen and I built a uh, profiler for, uh, for node. Yeah. I saw that on Google plus. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So, um, for, for Uber, you know, the, the thing that I work on primarily is the uh, dispatch server, which is sort of, you know, when you have all these smartphones pinging in every second or even less than a second with, me, you know, messages like pick up or drop off or whatever, just location messages. Um, you, you, you need, you need the, so because it gets those messages from all of the connected phones, all the drivers and all of the clients, the te- that, that's a lot of heat, right? That for us, for, for, a, for a service. Yeah. And it's very scalable, but I've no, we've noticed that even is something that was six months ago that was spiking at like 1.5% CPU percent utilization is now starting to run into, run into problems. It's starting hmm. to hit towards like maybe 50%. Um, well, because, you know, the growth of the business. That's right. It's just the business has grown so quickly. Um, and they also, one of the things they did is... Um, they increase the amount that these phones um, send in like a location message before it would, would, would ping like every four seconds. Now they ping as fast as they can, which is usually like, you know, a couple times a second or something. Wow. So that's a lot more work. Now the, the benefit is that the whole service is much more um, responsive, but it, it just really requires that the uh, service size stuff scale. Um, <clears throat> so one thing we wanted to do was like, profile the uh, the dispatch server and find out where what was what was you know the cause of of any uh, inefficiencies, and I I was trying to get the um, the V eight um, profiler to work, but from what I understand, I mean I couldn't get it. To, it, it, it would profile on some simple programs, but it would it would fail on the uh, dispatch server. And what I could what I basically got from that is that. The current V8 profile is not working with the more recent versions of Node, right? And so that's a problem. So it's like, okay, we're on the latest version of Node, and this has been a, the case, I think, for at least a few months. So this is something that's just like out of date for a couple of weeks or something. It's, um, and so basically, we don't. Have, there's no way for us to profile. And I, at first, I thought, well, it'd be cool if maybe I'll just write some kind of quick and dirty thing where it allowed me to put like an enter and exit and kind of have like a timer. And just say, okay, well, at least within this block or within this function call, we can, you know, kind of 
you know, at least, at least profile that. Yeah. <clears throat> and the first thing I had to do was find like a, a micro time or something that would give a sub millisecond um, resolution timing. And luckily, I found a library called MicroTime that some guy wrote that basically, at least for POSIX um, systems, like Unix systems or whatever, that um, you, know, you can access the high-resolution timer and, and you know, get things measured in microseconds or whatever. Um, but then it was, then I, so I got that thing working pretty quickly. And then I was like, you know, how can we do this so that you don't have to manually insert, like, you know, start and stop or enter exit? Yeah. Uh, timer calls so that every function has, has that happened to it. And I started working on it with, uh, I, I asked Guyon to help me out with a piece of it. And so we started working on it a little bit together. And, um, and, and one way to do it was that um, we said, okay, what we'll do is we, we have an inheritance function, a, a class.extend, I think is what it's called, which is what uh, John Resig, um, the jQuery guy wrote. Mm-hmm. And it's a really straightforward basic inheritance, um, you know, uh, function. It's like you know, hundred lines long or something. And we said, right, if we if we can, int- you know, write some code in there, insert some code in there, then we can get that to work. And then um, Guyon came up with a clever way to say what we can do is we can just sort of um, iterate over the global namespace for any of the any class any object that has this class name attribute that we we attach to it in this class extend, and then that will allow us to do it. So now all you have to do is say, you know, profile or enable or whatever and say how, how often you want it to, you know, on the console, say, print out your, a tree, a tree view of like all of the times and percentages and it'll do that. So it's like a little virus. It'll attach itself to everything in memory, to all the yeah. objects. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I guess so. But it, but it happens sort of at compile time. So, or, you know, not that you have compile time, but you can't do it at runtime when you, when you, uh, you have to go in the source code and say, okay, uh, you know, enable profiler enabled or true or false cool. and then you can set how frequently you want it to um how frequently you want it to display the results or whatever i mean you could also write a custom uh, display mechanism if you wanted to spit out to like a text file or something but did um you, did you get any interesting uh, responses or results uh, or i should say just a few people were asking about it like well is this is a statistical profiler and i don't really know what they what that means and at least the guy who left it unless he's talking about um you know, like the V8 profiler doesn't profile every single function call, only some percentage of it sort of samples them. So it's like, you know, maybe 5% of them. Huh. No, I, I meant, did you did you run it and find out anything interesting? Oh, oh, I thought you meant did, did there be interesting comments. I, I said response, but I meant results. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I haven't gone that far. So I just finished it up on Friday night. Um, a guy and I were working on it a little bit on Friday afternoon, and we got the the key... Uh, algorithms working, and then I was kind of tweaking some of the display stuff and uh, getting some options, some different configuration options, um, make those available. And uh, now on Monday, I guess I'll really go. That's one reason it's great to work for a company, but to get paid on working on you know fun stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, it's funny because it's like um, it's nice to have someone like Guyon too, because Guyon is really sharp guy. He's really good with algorithms. So if I'm ever like struggling with something or if it's a hard sometimes if it's like i know this is gonna be hard i'm like uh, <laughs> let's work on this together because <laughs> this is gonna be tricky and usually it's a, you know like an hour or two of work and we can sort it out together <clears throat> but uh it was funny because at first he's like it's not possible like the things i want to do like do this he's like that's not possible i'm like it has to be possible <laughs> you know so eventually he's like all right i think i i think i have an idea 
Funny. Nice. Like, no, I'm not accepting it's not possible. We have to be able to do this because uh, otherwise it's just not going to be very useful. But I thought it was pretty cool. And I mean, I, I haven't really done any hardcore testing with it, so I can't say, but I was running this the dispatch server in simulation mode and it didn't seem like um, using the profiler was putting an inordinate amount of workload on the actual process. Right. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't, you know, make it you know, twice as slow or something like that, but it wasn't like, you know, it just like all of a sudden brought my system to crawl or anything like that. I didn't even notice it. So, but that would be easy to say, okay, well, let's just make it so every, you know, some random number of calls it, uh, it, it times it and otherwise it just skips it so that you can do like a, a sampling and it won't affect the performance so much. Cool. But I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, um, nice. Did you, um, do you see that NASA, there's an article I haven't, I haven't read it in a few days, so I'm a little foggy, uh, foggy in the details, but NASA basically said that there are, they, there are a lot more planets that they anticipated. There was something like, I don't know, at least 100 billion planets in our galaxy. Mm-hmm. And that they, based on what they've discovered, is that there's a lot more sort of like smaller planets than there are like the gas giants. I think initially they thought, well, most, even if there are planets, mostly they're just going to be like Jupiter, like these big glass, you know, gas giants. But, you know, and, but in fact, they're actually going to be much more, you know, maybe not going to be Earth in the sense like all going to be life supporting or anything like that, but they're going to be, you know, in much closer to that type of planet. But, but even more specifically, like 1,500 planets they're estimating are of these smaller planets, I think, are within 50 light years of Earth. Oh, so that, really? Within yeah. how many light years? 50. I mean, it's still a long way away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like because we can travel I mean, 50 you, light years so easily. I think you'll still get, you know, I think you'll still incur long distance charges. You try and text <laughs> anyone, Alpha Centauri or whatever. But uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, that is cool. Um, but, but so what you're thinking that this kind of proves that, uh, well, not proves, but it's I don't think it proves anything. a little I bit more really- evidence towards extraterrestrials. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if there is extraterrestrial life out there, it's more likely, you know, going to be on some kind of planet that is Earth-like, I would think, just based yeah. on, you know, that's the only proof of any life that we've seen is Earth so far, at least in our right. solar system. So planets that are Earth-like you would lead you to think that, you know, that, that it's a higher probability. Um, but, um, you know, but they do find um, interesting, you know, or microorganisms every once in a while that live off of weird things like arsenic-based or, you know, they, they sort of metabolize sulfur or something like that as opposed yeah, to like... Yeah, yeah. Actually, when you see stuff like that, like these, you know, even on Earth, like at the, at the bottom of these vents at the bottom of the ocean or in these volcanoes or something. So, I, I, who knows? I mean, maybe there are planets that are not like Earth at all that have evolved some kind of a life, but um, I don't know. It's just cool. I mean, because every time you see... You, you, you oftentimes hear scientists will say, well, yeah, you know, but it's just not, this isn't possible or that's not possible or this will never exist because of this. And then it turns out, well, actually we're wrong. <laughs> turns out there are a lot more planets than we thought there were. Yeah. I mean, it still doesn't solve the problem that, you know, light speed is a limit to moving through the universe, 186,000 well, miles wasn't per there, second. There was recently some, some article somewhere about someone who'd done an experiment that something had traveled faster than the speed of light. Yeah, so it uh what was it the hadron collider they were Yeah. That's that um, you know the neutrinos or something that were but 
the I love it when we talk about this stuff because we both just know like a you know a tiny bit. In fact, we don't really know anything about it. We just talk yeah. about it anyway. <laughs> well, you know, what the hell? I mean, you know, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to get into the hardcore astrophysics, you can go listen to Star Talk with uh, I forgot the guy's name, uh, Tyson. Do you know that show, Star Talk? Nope. There's um, he's he's always on the Smithsonian. Let me see if I can find his name. But anyway, there are there are astrophysics podcasts. It's That's good enough. Star Talk people can Google that. So you've you've given yeah, it's a good info. podcast. Um, he's a funny guy. He has this uh, lady on her, on with him who's um, she's she's a comedian. She's hilarious. So <laughs> makes it well, on on every show. Yeah, it's kind of his co-host, you know. So she, <laughs> I mean, he's he's got a decent sense of humor, and he he's very um, you know he knows his stuff, and he's he's not like um, he's not like a total nerd where he can't hold a, a good conversation, but. It's it's nice to have sort of a, a lay person there who's really funny to open up the conversation and make it really accessible, you know. Yeah. But um, I don't know. You got me off point. I can't remember what I was talking about. Oh, oh, we were talking about how we don't know or how we don't know much about this stuff, the neutrino stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like you read this stuff. I mean, how many articles do you read in a day? Probably read. I probably skim it. I probably there are probably 10, 30 20. articles a day that I at least skim and that with 30. You know, probably 30. Wow. And with reading probably 15, 10 to 15 and at least at least when I say skimming like I read like the first two or three paragraphs and kind of get the gist and like I got Like it. how could you even keep that much in your head, you know? Yeah. I mean it's like it's I don't much. know. I mean I I'm like, yeah, I recall I read something a few months ago. There was a study on something, you know, I don't know. I mean it's just hard to remember all this stuff, but um yeah, now I'm totally off track. What were we talking about for this? All right, well, um, <clears throat> we need to wrap it up soon. So why don't you bring <laughs> why don't you bring up your last topic for the show? Let me see what, what we'll wrap it up on. How do you want to end it? Well, I, I think we should end it on the light side because I, I keep, we 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 spent a lot of time the last couple episodes getting into you know wars and dark, 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 dark political things. Which really isn't what the show is about, but I don't know why. I guess I've just been thinking about that stuff, so it's hard not to talk about it. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. Well, it, I guess this is semi-political, which is about the hackers plan space satellites to combat censorship. Okay, we're looking for a short, light topic to end the show with in the next two minutes. Oh. How, about, how about this? We got an email from Mike Fleming, who, um, amongst other things, suggests we should check out kettlebells for exercising. Kettlebells? Yeah, kettlebells. You, for you, you had, that was something for you to do. No, for both of us. For me? Yeah. I didn't he, get the email. You did. He, you did. You did. He CC'd us both. Yeah. Huh. What do you think of kettlebells? I, you know, anything can work, man. Push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, dumbbells. He was saying oh. that, he was saying it's just an easy workout that doesn't feel like a workout. But it's, yeah, he, it's not easy. That is probably not much of a workout. So I'll just give it, there's no shortcuts. <laughs> No, no, he, he didn't say it it was okay okay he says finally i've been meaning to write to you and jason about an exercise solution for both of you kettlebells cardio and strength in one fun workout you can do from home in under one, one hour beats yeah, yeah. machines okay, any so day what he's saying is that you don't have to go to the gym make a big deal out of it it's not that it isn't probably straining i mean if you're not breaking yeah. up wet and getting out of breath you're not really doing anything but I, I didn't don't... mean that i didn't mean that i don't know why you picked up on that, but that didn't mean that. <laughs> I, I, if you're excited about it, that's probably what you're thinking. <laughs> no, I just meant it was like relatively easy to do versus getting in the car and getting your gym kit and going down the gym and 
that. That's what I meant. I know you're kind of allergic to. You don't really like going to the gym. But we've never have. Have you? Yeah, you belonged to a gym for a while, right? I did. Yeah. But you don't I like did. going to the gym. I don't mind going to the gym as long as it's easy enough. The best way to go to the gym is if it's on your daily travel. You know, where, like in London, I used to go to the gym a lot because it was so easy. It was exactly in between my work and my uh, home. Yeah, that, <clears throat> when things are easy routine wise, I I um. I like going to the gym because basically, but when it gets to the end of the day, I just like I got to get the hell out of the house, the hell out of the office. I just feel I have to get a workout in or something. I feel kind of I don't feel very good. I feel kind of like I, I I need to get rid of the stress. I've decided to stop working in my kitchen because it feels too closed off. So because of being away in the UK, this is I'm I'm totally jumping to another place here. <laughs> <laughs> but because of being aware in the UK, right? I wasn't using a big screen. I was just using my little laptop. I'm kind of used to that now for the last month. And it's just much nicer in the front of the house where there's sunshine coming in. And uh, I don't know whether that's interesting, but... Uh, Do you sit at a desk or a table or at a couch? Well, or what? I, normally, I normally sit like I, like I have a desk, but it's in the kitchen. Because, you know, we moved to this small flat, this, yeah. this small place, right? So my office has been the kitchen, which is like this kind of slightly dark, small room at the back of the house. Sounds like hell. Um, yeah, but I've decided, you know what? I'm I'm done with working in that kind of dark place. I think I'm going to work in the sunshine now. Yeah, I I think it's just kind of important, at least it's important for me. I I have a really nice office. That the bat I, cave. Uh, bat cave, yeah. I mean, it's big vaulted ceilings and hardwood floors and a lot of natural light. And, you know, I got to, yeah, so it's an entire room to myself. And it's it's just, it's far enough off the rest of the house that I'm, I don't get interrupted by the noise. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, 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 if, if I'm not in my environment, I don't have the chair I, I like and all that kind of stuff. I'm not nearly as productive. So I don't know how you find that, but it's a big difference for me. It's not like I'm just a little more productive. I'm here. I'm like three times as productive or something. All right, then so you'll call it. You're not giving me anything else. I think that means you're done. Well, I, if you, if you have something, Good. I'll take no, it. That's fine. That's fine. I think we got <laughs> we got me a show. So all right. Um oh before, before we go. I was, <laughs> oh, I, almost out the door. Oh so close. <laughs> we got three uh we got three um interviews lined up. Nice. We have next week, or actually day after tomorrow, Tuesday, we're interviewing Rob Walling about his acquisition of Hittail. Yep. Acquisition and refurbishing of Hittail. That's gonna be an interesting story. Um, and it's always fun to have Rob on, so that should that that's going to be a good time. And then we have the week after that we have Kaggle, I believe. Yep. And they that's the site where you can. It's kind of like you know the Netflix prize where they put a bunch of data up there and they said, look, if you can incre- improve on our results by ten percent, we'll give you a million dollars. I think I think mm-hmm. it was a million dollar prize. And this site sort of makes a makes makes it so that any company can upload their data and put like a bounty up of like five or ten thousand dollars or whatever it is and say, hey, if you can make this this much better or the best most predictive results or whatever wins and gets the money. And that's they've been doing right now. So Kaggle. And number three? And, and third one is Stripe. Oh, of course. Yeah, Stripe. Stripe are joining us. But we also have a fourth one, which is Paul Pate's um innovative disruption.com. Um, but you just need to schedule that. Is he confirmed? I mean, he want, he's, he, he's definitely agreed to be on the show, right? Oh, it's yeah, just, definitely. It's just a question of you scheduling the time. Well, I sent him an email a couple of days ago, so hopefully he'll get back to me. And I, I want to, 
you know, I, I know I kind of do these, um, I do the scheduling in spurts. Yeah. So I like to just like get a whole bunch scheduled and I don't have to think about it for a couple months, you know, just get like the next six weeks or seven weeks scheduled out and we're kind of set. So, although it's funny, we get, I always get these, um, suggestions to like interview these really famous people. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's not so I, easy to get them. Yeah. It's like, you know, you don't understand. I send these people emails and I, I don't, they don't even respond, you know? Like Jerry Pornell or whatever. I mean, they don't. They don't even need nothing. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, you know, it's. I guess it's fine. You write someone an email, and, it, and it's not the biggest loss in the world. You spend fifteen minutes crafting a, the perfect email. It's not too long. Not too short. You know, it's very customized to like trying to talk to them and get them to you know wanna wanna do it. But kind of sucks. You just never hear anything back. But uh, anyway, at least the next three to three or four weeks, we're we're set. We get, we're back on the uh, interview thing, so it should be fun. Oh, awesome. and the other thing I was to say is, some people would ask about getting someone from Uber on. Yeah, like, uh, I you know I have to talk to. I think the best idea would probably getting um, Curtis on, um, who's the VP of Engineering. I don't know get if getting uh, Travis on will happen anytime soon. I know he is just like traveling around the world. I'm um, getting all these offices set up. So I, I think don't know. it'd be great to get Curtis on. Just talk about what you've done with the dispatch system and how you guys have worked together on that. And yeah, that that would be a little easier. I'm sure he'd have no problem doing that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm flying up there on Wednesday for a few more days. So cool. So you can talk to him then. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's it. We're done. <laughs> oh wait, I had one more. Oh, go on then. <laughs> this is the show. This, this is this is the show that never ends. <laughs> Well, this is from last week. Uh, or, yeah, last week. We need to talk about it. It says, um, it was talking about, uh, it was a, it was, this episode was Physicists Seek to Lose the Lecture as Training Tool. Right. Basically, they finally discovered that lecture hall instruction doesn't work very well. Like, huh. no, surprise. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Hey, I wouldn't know. But anyway. Yeah. It's like, you know, because... You know, and I guess what they, in this story, this is on NPR, where, uh, you know, basically they discovered that, I guess some of the, one of the, one of these physics professors did, was sort of realizing, like, how many of his students just weren't being su- successful. And so he did an experiment where he said, all right, instead of me lecturing, what I'm going to do is have everyone read the material the night before, and they come into class, he'll put up a problem on the, you know, a series of problems on the board, and people work together in small groups, and at the end of it, they'll, and then after, you know, sorry, right, here's 10 minutes or 15 minutes, everybody work on this problem together. And then, okay, once everybody's done, you know, and people can work on it and help each other, whatever, then we'll kind of talk about the problem a little bit, kind of more of a work group kind of approach. And that turned out to work out way better, which reminds me of an article I had read probably a couple of years ago at MIT where they did that, where rather than coming to lecture hall, they had a room where they'd have a table, you know, there's a series of these you know, round tables that would probably seat like eight people. And so imagine you'd have like, you know, eight or 10 of these tables and you have like half a dozen, you know, TAs walking around as well. And, you know, they would have problems to work on based on the material and everyone at the table would working on it and sharing ideas and kind of brainstorming it and the people who got it, helping the people who are struggling. And, and that's good for both of them, right? Because if you're struggling, you need someone who gets it to kind of explain it to you or help you through it. And if you pretty much understanding the problem, it, it reinforces if you can actually explain to people who don't understand it in a way that they can understand it. Long story it's no- short, it's basically um, student participation rather than just being spoken to. 
Yeah, because you know, just kind of space out. You sit there, and I don't know about you, but man, well, you like you said, you you dropped that high school. But when I was at college, I had hard, <laughs> I had the hardest time sitting through lectures. I just, I just, just I just space out constantly. Just just standing there listening to someone talk on a board, and 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 what they would do is they would just write out proofs or write out a equa- You know, they would say, okay, well, let's prove this. It's like, dude, it's in the book. Why do I got to watch you do it? Yeah, you know, it's not helping me. You're not adding any value. Um, you know, what I'd like to do is have to do the problem set and then we go on and we work through the problems and stuff. But what I was thinking is like, you know, I've talked a little bit about this before, but the idea that, you know, you have these online courses like the um, open courseware at MIT and Stanford has been doing a lot in that area. And I think Yale and Carnegie Mellon. So they only have all these advanced math and computer science and um, physics and machine learning and engineering courses online. You combine that with something like Tutor Spree, where you can just go find a tutor in your area, and you just you know say, all right, well I'm gonna sit through a lecture, you know, and find someone who's an expert on that or, or a tutor for that field, and say, all right, I'm watch, I'm gonna watch this you know lecture series at MIT on differential equations, and have and then you know meet once a week, you you watch one or two lectures and do some of the assigned problem sets, and then you go and work through them with a uh, with a tutor. It's the future of education. Yeah, well, it's custom. It would, work, it would work better. I mean, it would it would be cheaper. You'd go and it would work. It would work better. And I think the only thing that you would really need to make that work is having kind of credentialing, credentialing, cred, credentialing. Am I saying that? Credentials. Right? Credentialing. Yes. So, like, you know, just like you take like, um, you know, like AP courses coming out of high school to place out of like calculus and physics and history and things like that. You know, if you could, if there were like tests that you could go take this is all right you know you know partial differential equations or you know electrical engineering you know first year electrical engineering or something like that so like you could demonstrate that you know it and that would put all the pieces to play in place because just because you took the courses i mean no one knows you really know it's like i I sat through the you know stanford's you know ai course okay did you do any of the work (laughs) (laughs) do you know it that doesn't mean anything um but you know if you could go to like one of these like learning centers where they have like, you know, um, you can take tests in sort of an area where, they, where it's, you know, where it's sort of proctored where people can tell you, you know, kid, you know, it's, it's, it's not a place where you could cheat. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think you'd have all the pieces and, you, and, oh, you know, what I was thinking the other, the last piece, this is, this is the last piece of the idea I had is that you'd have like, you have like a site, a website where you'd have sort of like mentors or advisors, you know, like, and, and when you go to work on a PhD, you have a, a your PhD advisor, someone who kind of guides you through your, um, your research. If you said, "All right, well, I want to I want to learn this, you know, this field. I want to become an expert in this field," and there'd be people on these sites and the, who would be kind of advisors, say, "Okay, well, you know, I think you need to let's take a look and talk about what you do know and what do you want to learn." And based on that, I think you should take, you know, these are the half dozen courses I think you should take over the next year or two years and um there are you know these are the available sites and here's the materials and you know that person could kind of guide you and then but then you'd have like a tutor who'd be kind of an area who you could meet with at a coffee shop or library or whatever who could kind of help you through the, the actual material itself i like it sounds like a good idea yeah the synthetic university sounds like a blog post doesn't it yep i want my synthetic university and i want it now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we think one of the things that got me thinking about it, is, or the reasons that got me thinking about it, was I was talking to a friend of mine, Cause, and he just sat through the, um, uh, he just watched all of the um, Stanford's machine learning lectures, 
and he's just been working through the material. But he, of course, he has a master's in math, so you know he's a really bright guy, and he has a very solid mathematical foundation. So it's easy for him to kind of do something like that and not have to worry about having you know, a, a resource like a, like a tutor, but um, even still, it's always helpful. All right, dude, I'm going to have to call the show. That's it? Are you kicking me out? Are you kicking me off the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> until next week or until, until the next um, interview. All right, all right. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. We're out.